News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, these days we are all worried about our money, aren't we? And there are plenty of stories in the news that impact our wallet. So how do we figure it all out? How do we learn more about our options and our finances? We have something that might help you out with that, actually. For What It's Worth is a new one-hour show you'll find across the Chorus Radio Network on Saturday mornings. Joining us now to talk more about it is the host, Rabina Ahmed-Hawk, who's the host of For What It's Worth. And congratulations on the new show, Rabina. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. What can we learn by listening? What is it that you wanted to give to Canadians out there? You know, often we listen to business news and they use terminology that goes over most people's heads, even myself included. I'll watch business uh, television and it feels like they're not really talking to me. They're talking to, you know, rich people and how they can get richer. (laughs) And really what I want to do is I want to make it so that it's accessible to everybody. So no matter your financial situation, you're going to get something out of this show. You're going to walk away and say, you know what, I learned something about my money today. And it doesn't have to be something that's grand and you know, going to take a lot of work. It could be something very simple. For example, this week we have Matea Roach on. She is a 23-time Jeopardy winner, the, 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 the only Canadian to make it that far ever on that game show. And she came into a lot of money very quickly, a $760,000 Canadian. And I'm talking to her about how she's managing that. And so that really speaks to maybe those individuals who get a raise and they don't know how to deal with the fact that they're making more money all of a sudden, or maybe they inherit some money. Um, And also quite inspiring to hear how frugal she is. And so some sort of tips for those individuals who are trying to keep up with the Jones and do other things to show that even someone who could do it is still being quite frugal with her cash. Oh, that's so interesting because this is a really tough time for a lot of us, a lot of Canadians out there, what are you hearing from them? What are the biggest concerns do you think that that people have right now? The biggest concern is cost of living and it's the basics, right? It's the grocery store shop. It's the going to the gas station. We're getting sticker shock everywhere we go. And so Canadians, especially going into the holidays, are now worried about, you know, not just how are we going to buy everything that we need during this expensive holiday time, but how are we going to put food on the table? How are we going to pay our utilities when everything is going up? So really speaking to that um, and how to uh, manage, how to help Canadians through this time, how to find ways to, to save more money, how to be a little bit more savvy with the way that you are investing your money so that you're getting best return on investment on the cash that you are able to save. Those are the kinds of conversations I want to have. Are people nervous, do you think, right now about the markets and putting money in the markets? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of volatility. And in fact, the other guest that we have on this week is a financial advisor who will speak to whether you have $5,000 or $50,000 or $500,000, how you should be managing that cash the kinds of conversations that you should be having, whether you're uh, working with a professional or doing it yourself, and how we can ride out this recession. If you can afford to, the best advice always is not to get out of the market, but to stay in it. But that can be a, that can be a very difficult uh, piece of advice to follow when you open your account and you see it go up and down so dramatically. So we'll be speaking to him about you know what we can be doing with our money right now that, that's just going to make us financially more well in the future. Do you feel like, Rabina, perhaps with this particular economic situation, it's different this time because it's we can see it everywhere, right? Every time we go to the store, we can see it. 
You're absolutely right. Uh, the 2008-2009 uh, uh, housing crisis in the United States, which created a global recession, really did impact those individuals who had money invested in the market. So they saw their investments come down, and it took quite a while for those investments to come back. So sometimes it's hard to sort of feel sorry for, oh, well, you're not as rich as you used to be, and now you're just waiting for it to all kind of come back to you. But in this case, there wasn't as much sticker shock when it came to how much things were going up in price. In fact, prices actually fell in 2008, 2009 because we weren't buying anything. And so retailers were slashing their prices to get people through the door. But now because of the higher cost of uh, everything, so it costs companies more to truck stuff to you to the stores. It costs them more because wages are going up now um, a year over year faster than they have in 10 years. It costs them more to make those items for you through labor costs. They have no other choice but to pass those costs on to consumers. And so we are feeling it in our everyday spending. Uh, you know, you run to the grocery store and you can't believe how little you get for $50 yeah. when in some cases... You know, my entire grocery shop used to be $100 a few years ago, and now it feels like it barely just, you know, covers the snacks that my kids eat in a week. That is so true. You know, you walk away with two bags of groceries, and you're like, how did I pay that much money for just these two bags of groceries? Yeah, and I'm not even shopping at, you know, the really expensive posh grocery stores. I really do keep it pretty frugal and go to stores that offer you the deepest discounts. And they're, they're those prices, and in the, the, the thing for shoppers is that I'm, I'm the main shopper in my family. I know how much things cost, the average cost of, you know, apples, the average cost of this box of cereal that my kids eat. So I immediately see it that, wow, this used to be three ninety nine, now it's five ninety nine. You know, yeah. things have gone up pretty dramatically in price, and, and we feel it right away, and we have no other choice because if we want to continue to eat that way, we just have to pay those prices. Right, so you're going to break all that down for us, right, on Saturday mornings. Yes, hoping that for what it's worth is going to be some uh, source of, you know, inspiration to get people to spend their money differently, to hear stories from people who are inspiring, and to just get information that is accessible. So whether you're a teenager or a grandma, you're going to get something out of it. Uh, And just hear some really great, uh, you know, money stories from people, uh, because often I think that can inspire us when we hear about how others are managing um, and their situation may be similar to yours. Uh, how they're managing their money, it can, it can often inspire us to do better with ours. That is so true. All right, Rubina, thank you. Thank you for having me. So Rubina Ahmed Haq, who's the host of the new Chorus show, for what it's worth, you can hear it on Saturday morning. She's a personal finance expert. She's going to be there to help you out. This is Mornings with Simi. 2021 was the single most expensive year in BC for climate disasters. It's a new study that found the cost to our economy could be as high as $17 billion. Now, that is a study from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, but they took a look at the cost of the heat dome, the wildfires, the flooding and the landslides. Communities around the province have struggled with the outcome of those events and trying to recover from them. So we thought, let's talk to the mayor of one of those communities. Mike Getz joins us now, the mayor of Merritt. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. Thank you for having me on. Does a number like that surprise you, given what you've seen in your community in the last couple of years? Not at all. No, it, it doesn't. I mean, it's an overall uh, looking at what was lost, not only by flood, but also what uh, uh, shop owners and people who had businesses and people who couldn't get to work. So I'm not really surprised by that number at all, no. What has it been like in Merritt? And first of all, like I know that Merritt was like incredibly hit hard by the flooding from a year ago. What has recovery been like? 
You know, recovery has been uh, fairly uh, quick uh, within the city, everybody getting their homes back together, the schools getting back open again. There's been a, a great push by the community to get their community back to what it looked like. And I have to be honest with you, Simi, if you walk down the streets uh, of some of the places that were flooded now, you'd really not know that some things didn't happen unless someone pointed out to you that on my street alone we have seven houses that are still, no one's in them. Uh, behind me we lost five houses that had to be torn down. Uh, but if you walked it now, you wouldn't really notice this. Where you do notice the situation is uh, the Coldwater River itself, where the dikes are, are still uh, temporary and damaged uh, or missing completely. So you would people are resilient then? Oh, of course. Um, nobody here has decided they're leaving. They're, they're, they're digging in and they're fixing their homes. And it's just, you know, it's another thing that's happened. It's just another thing that makes the community stronger. I didn't know all my neighbors on this street because I was flooded as well. Uh, but once we all pulled together and we've worked for the last 11, 12 months, I know everybody on the street and everybody knows us. And uh, we've all pitched in and it's that, uh, you know, merit strong or whatever strong you want to call it. But uh, nobody cut and run. And, and uh, we're all, yeah, we're, we're all still working towards the goal of getting our homes back to being normal. Do you think we've learned lessons, though, Mayor Getz, too? Like, can you foresee a problem like this happening again? And how is a community like Merritt, how can you prepare for it? Well, I think anybody that doesn't, uh, you know, people are calling this a one in 750 year or one in 250 year flood. I think, I think that that theory and that feeling has to go out the window. I think you have to be prepared when you live beside two rivers like we do. You have to be prepared at all times. So, I, I would say this could happen at any point in time. It all depends what atmospheric rivers and everything else do. So, I think a community should, such as ours, be prepared. And one of the ways we're going to be preparing is. We've done a flood mitigation dike study and uh, got that uh, completed thanks to the province giving us the funding to do that. And uh, we're just trying to get the federal government to uh, come on board with us. Okay, so what would that what would that entail and how would that change the community? Well, we would basically have the dikes uh, fixed so we would be able to handle much higher flows of water through the community than what we were able to handle before. And, um, the, you know, the, the dike mitigation study uh, allows the river to be changed uh, to take out some of the kinks and uh, go through different areas so we could actually get the water through the community faster uh, than it has been in the past. Is this something that you find the community is on board with, Mayor Getz? Do people say, like, listen, we have to make sure this can't happen again? Of course. Uh, everybody is concerned. Uh you know, people say we're coming into a freshet season, and the freshet season in our area starts basically in November when it starts to snow because right now we're cold and we have a lot of snow, but a week from now we could be plus seven and raining. And we do have to contend with the high amounts of snow up in the Coquihalla that all seem to come this way when it melts. So it's something we have to be concerned about all the time. And, of course, then we end up with the March and April spring high water. And, uh, it, yes, it's, it's something we have to be concerned about the whole time. Okay, so what is your advice then to mayors of other communities uh, who might have to deal with something similar? You know, uh, be prepared. Uh, you watch your your um, your weather statements that come in. Don't take them for granted. Have things like sandbagging stations and everything ready to flow. Um, and even if you have to overreact, overreact because it's a little bit better to overreact and be overprepared than to be complacent and have a situation. But be prepared and, and just, you know, keep your, your eye to the sky and uh, let your citizens know what's happening and uh, just be prepared. So given all that, then you talked about, you know, you can't wait to get everybody kind of back into their homes. What is the timeline for that? How do you, when do you foresee a kind of back to normal, so to speak, in Merritt? You know, it's really tough because a lot of people here are still dealing with insurance situations or uh 
the, uh, the disaster, the DFA, uh, and some of them are on hold on that. Some people were not insured, others were. Um, there, I, as far as the timeline, I don't think there really is one. It's the timeline that somebody who is working on their home can hit. Uh, myself, it's taken 11 months, and I still have a little bit left to go. So the timeline for most people is, I think, anywhere from 11 months to two years. It all depends how things go. And then you have supply chain problems. And of course, you've got three communities that are all trying to rebuild homes at the same time. So you have supply chain issues such as drywall, such as flooring. So uh, things do run out. So uh, the time frame on that is basically what anybody can do at a certain time, because as far as reclaiming, there is no time frame. Right. Marigat, you sound still very optimistic, very positive about that. It must have been a very trying year for you. It was, but you know what? It, it does make you stronger, and uh, I know that's a saying that gets said all the time. But it does make you stronger, and it, it builds resiliency and it builds character in your community. Uh, I have had several people come through, uh, offering their help through the office in the last couple of days. If we need anything, give us a shout, sort of thing. And everybody is just looking out for their neighbors. And uh, you know, I, on on the morning of this, I mean, I walked the whole flood area on the sixteenth uh, of November just to remember because I had walked it when I got home, and I walked it again a year later. And there still is a surprising amount of of damage and people that are still out of their homes. And I wanted to walk it just to remember. It was a 14-kilometer walk, but uh, it it puts, and I had some people join me, but it puts into perspective of where we were and where we still need to go. Uh, One of the main things, too, is just looking at the Middlesbrough Bridge, which is half there and half gone. And that's a pretty big symbol for us right now. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us this morning. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate your time. That's Mike Getz, the mayor of Merritt, talking about being prepared for the worst, right? We know 2021, most expensive year that BC has had in its history in terms of dealing with climate events, whether it was the heat dome, wildfires, flooding, landslides, you name it, we had it in 2021. And the potential cost, you know, we're talking billions and billions of dollars. Communities like Merritt still dealing with the fallout of that. You know, and and preparation is a good word for this week, I think, just in general. We saw what lack of preparation on Tuesday did for us in terms of our roads and the gridlock that we saw there and people taking 10 hours to get home when what should have been like a half an hour drive. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? And tomorrow we have potentially another uh, cold, snowy situation, icy situation out there this morning. Do you think we need to be better prepared and how do we do that? This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about something called Pluto TV. It is launching in Canada today, so you may be wondering, well, what is it all about? We're going to help you with that. Joining us now is Olivier Jolet, who's the Executive Vice President and International GM for Pluto TV. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Now, I'm going to ask you that question right off the bat. What is Pluto TV? Well, Pluto TV is a new free TV in a way. It's a free streaming television service that features 170 channels at launch in Canada and more than 1,000 content on demand, entirely free. Okay, how? How is it entirely free? <laughs> well, it is with advertising, obviously. You know, it's, uh, it's the price to pay for uh, having a free service, but it's, uh, it's a super easy service where, you know, you have no registration, no subscription, no hidden cost. You just download the application, and you will be able to enjoy more than 100 channels, and altogether more than 20,000 20, hours of free content. Okay, what kind of, yeah, what kind of content is it, and what kind, are there movies, TV shows, like what will we see? We're trying to have something for everyone, whether you're into movie, TV shows, cooking shows, kids shows, drama, reality shows, um, you know, we have like 
great crime uh, channels with NCIS, CSI, um, reality shows like El Kitchen, the Drew Barrymore Show, and amazing uh, blockbusters like, I don't know, Forrest Gump, Monetary Report, and again, everything free, so which is fantastic for the users. Yeah, Olivia, this must be a very challenging environment for you right now, though, is to make sure people, people know about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, I think we're launching at a good time. Uh, we're launching at a time where the cost of living are, give, are, are going up. And, and obviously, you know, providing such an amazing uh, uh, quality and quantity of content to the Canadian audience, I think, is, uh, is really uh, um, a good timing. And, you know, we'll be, uh, the, the product is live since today and we'll be uh, doing a lot of promotion, big marketing campaign to uh, make sure uh, everyone in Canada knows about through the TV. Okay, and so is this around the world? Are you in other countries too? Yes, we're live around the world. Today, Pluto TV is, uh, is the, 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 the leading free ad-supported streaming television service in the world with 72 million users already across the world, live in uh, more than 30 countries already. It started, everything started in the U.S. back in 2014 uh, with this idea of bringing really the linear experience into the digital, uh, into the digital market. Okay, so where can people find it then? Well, it's uh, on all app stores, so on Connected TV, Samsung, LG, Roku, Fire TV, Apple TV. Uh, you just go to the app store, type Pluto TV, and you will find the application. But it's also on mobile, both Android and, and, and iPhone, and on Pluto.tv on the, on the website. Okay, so great. So we can look for that starting this morning? Exactly. We just launched. Super excited about that. And we're excited to see, like, uh, what kind of shows the, uh, the Canadian uh, users will, will watch. We have a really a good combination of, like, international eats, but also a lot of uh, really local shows like, you know, Property Brothers, Border Security, Chop Canada, Run Chef Canada. So really like this uh, uh, good balance of uh, international and local shows. I will definitely be checking that out. Olivia, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. And best of luck. That's Olivia Jolet, who's the Executive Vice President, International GM for Pluto TV. It's available worldwide and as of this morning, available in Canada, too, for you to check out. This is Mornings with Simi. The numbers are in for the month of October when it comes to the number of people who were killed due to toxic drugs. And it continues to go up. In October, we had an average of 5.8 deaths per day. That's eight more than in September overall. 179 is what we had in the month of October. And that means that the total fatalities in the first 10 months of this year have now reached 1,827. Every month we seem to talk about this and the numbers keep going up. Joining us now is Lisa LaPointe, BC's Chief Coroner. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Simi. This must be incredibly frustrating for you, too. These numbers are, are going up no matter it feels like what kind of interventions we're doing. It's really heartbreaking. Um, you know, as coroners, our, our, our folks are out there in the community talking to families and, of course, uh, are at the scenes of death and investigating to determine cause of manner of death. And it's truly heartbreaking all across the province. People are losing loved ones and friends. Um, and as you know, we've lost well over 10,000 people in this public health emergency, which continues on. So it is very frustrating and it's tremendously sad. Is there anything in the numbers, like when you drill down to them, where you see, okay, there is some room for improvement here, we might be able to make a difference? Well, we've certainly seen some really important recommendations, both from our two death review panels um, that the BC Coroner Service facilitated, uh, to inquests that we've held into toxic drug deaths, 
And then, of course, the Select Standing Committee on Health made a number of recommendations. And those are all very consistent in terms of uh, approaches that are evidence-based. So looking at treatment options, um, a lot, providing treatment where and when people are looking for it. Uh, treatment is, is not accessible in many parts of our province and it can be very costly. There are a variety of treatment and um, uh, measures, recovery services, some are for profit. Uh, there's not a, a provincial regulation over that right now, so we actually don't have a way of knowing what is most effective, where and for whom, and that's a recommendation that's been made several times. And then, of course, in addition, this is not another word, this is in addition, a recommendation for the provision of safer supply on an urgent basis in both the uh, death penalty panel that we facilitated and the Select Standing Committee recommended that across the province as a way of keeping people alive. People cannot access treatment and recovery. They cannot go onto a path uh, for um, for a positive lifestyle um, when they are when they are dead, uh, frankly. And the toxic supply right now is so so difficult to manage. It's very unpredictable. It's volatile, and we know that people are dying in communities, big and small, uh, all walks of life across the province. So, do you think then the safe supply issue, which we've talked quite a bit about, is that a stepping stone to we 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 stabilize people with safe supply and then we can get them the help that they need? I think it's both. I think we need to be really cautious. Um, we you know we can't. Um, every person who uses drugs is a different person, and people come to substance use for different reasons, uh, different routes, and there will be different methods to help them um, to live safe lives. So for some people, uh, there are people now we know who are urgently looking for treatment and recovery services that aren't accessible to them. We know there are people looking for opioid agonist therapy, so a treatment uh, regime with um, agonists, opioid agonists. Uh, And then we know there are people who will need the provision of safe supply uh, maybe for some time. Uh, to help them regulate their lives, because we know that uh, currently, of course, the, the safe, uh, substances are only available on the illicit market, and so people are having to buy those, and uh, the purity is um, very, very questionable. Uh, drug traffickers uh, profit from this system. Uh, it really helps nobody, but uh, the people, many, many sell drugs to vulnerable so providing a supply that is safe and stable uh, prevents the harms associated with a toxic drug event. Uh, this is the worst outcome, but people are suffering very serious toxic From what you're observing then, what is taking so long for us to be able to expand those numbers in terms of safe supply to really make a difference? Yeah, that's a, that is a really good question. And certainly the death review that came out um, last spring was urgent. The word urgent was was all through that report. And when I read the report of the Select Standing Committee that came out just recently, um, again, urgent, urgent, urgent. And and I I don't know. I haven't seen an urgent response. Um, it is heartbreaking. It is frustrating. We know that there is a reluctance on the part of some physicians to prescribe, because of course, this is a, a medical practitioner-based model of safer supply, prescribed for supply. And um, depending on where you live in the province, 
there are physicians, physicians are very reluctant. So in Vancouver, Victoria, uh, there are some physicians willing to do that in some areas of the province, other areas as well. And there are some federal, two federal pilots, the SAFER pilots, are uh, doing very, very well. But as you move out into the uh, farther reaches of the province, the interior and the north, uh, very little access to SAFER supply, a great reluctance. And so there are um, different um, uh, agencies now looking at how can we implement this safe supply that doesn't depend on individual practitioners in individual communities, because that is a very uh, a very challenging way to do this on an urgent basis. And is that do you think something that we are moving towards? Uh, it's certainly that has been recommended. Um, I. I I can't speak for what the plans are. Um, uh, my agency has made that recommendation, certainly, for the urgent implementation. And the, um, the Select Standing Committee also made the recommendations that um, a safe, uh, prescribed safer supply should be available in all areas of the province and recommended urgent engagement with the regulatory colleges to make sure that happens. Okay, so for 2023 right. then, what, what is it that we really need to do? What would you like to see happen? 2023, if I I had my Christmas wish list, I would like to see, I would love to see the provision of, uh, initially, because that's been the recommendation so far, although our guest review panel looked at a broader approach, prescribed safe supply across the province. So anybody who is at risk of significant harm or death by using substances, and frankly, that's anybody who's using illicit substances, would have an avenue to access safe supply to keep them alive. And then I would also like to see the implementation of a plan for treatment and recovery that's evidence-based. So let's start collecting. Sadly, we don't have that data yet, but let's start collecting information on every treatment and uh, recovery initiative in this province, uh, including the the beds. And uh, let's find out what is effective uh, and let's continue to fund what's working. Let's find out what's working and let's put those everywhere we can across this province. You know what? I'm a little surprised, as I think other people would be too, surprised to hear that we don't even count that. We don't have a comprehensive list of all the beds and all the different types of treatment? No, we don't. If you look at the committee recommendations, uh, recommendations 15 and 16 were about that. Create new legislation to provide a statutory framework uh, that encompasses all treatment and recovery services in BC and create a provincial system to collect data to increase oversight and determine effectiveness. We do not have that now. I cannot look at a database and access, uh, have a look and see, okay, which treatment and recovery services are most effective? Where are they situated? How many people have have attended them? And what are the outcomes for those people? How many are still alive and, and uh, over what period of time? people uh, go through. You know, we hear a lot about this being a um, substance dependency being a condition for people relapsing and again and again. And it would be interesting to see, um, is that true of all services or or some services? Do people do better with some than others? Urgent need for that framework. Yeah, I can see why. Uh, Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Well, thank you as always, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 
There's a new cafe, first of its kind in Canada, that is holding its official launch tomorrow. What's so special about it? Let's find out. Here's our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hey, Simi. Yeah, this uh, nonprofit organization called the Kettle Society is behind this project. And they've had a pop-up location of something called the Recovery Cafe. But now they're in a new location. It's a permanent location. And this is a very unique place. It's a place where people can come during their recovery journey and get that sense of belonging among a caring community. So someone in recovery uh, from substance abuse might find that journey isolating. And, you know, our government provides lots of services, but they're often clinical, right? Or they're medical services, or they can meet just very basic needs. But it's about what's actual support look like? What does a community look like? And how can that be provided to people? So that's what the Recovery Cafe is trying to meet. They're trying to make uh, fill that gap there and bridge things for folks that really need it. And so they do things like hold a, a weekly circle uh, where people can talk about their recovery journey. And it just helps people feel uh, more seen and heard. And I talked to Damien Murphy. He's the manager at the cafe. The cafe is a new program with the Kettle Society. And what we're doing is uh, building a community of support uh, for people who are in recovery. And the focus is addiction recovery. But we also recognize that people are in recovery from other things, including trauma, homelessness, uh, grief and loss. So at the cafe, we say everybody's in recovery from something. Yeah, we're part of the Recovery Cafe Network, which started down in the States in Seattle. Um, and it was actually a Street to Home Foundation, uh, who's our main funder at the moment, um, who recognized that it could be an effective model in the recovery continuum here in uh, Vancouver. So they actually um, went and visited the cafe and created a business case for why uh, it, this program is needed here. You know, it is a drug and alcohol free space, uh, which makes it a safe and comfortable space for, uh, for everybody. And we're building basically an intentional community for people who are on this recovery journey, whatever that recovery looks like to the individual. We know from uh, various studies about recovery that uh, people who are in recovery are often um, isolated or dealing with the after effects of recovery uh, on their own. So um, by creating a community uh, with other like-minded individuals, it can help people maintain that recovery. And the intentionality part is um, it's a membership model. So it's a free membership, but there's some expectations of members who join here. And the number one expectation is that folks will come out for a weekly uh, recovery circle. And it's an opportunity to share uh, with a group of other individuals uh, on a weekly basis for one hour uh, what's going on with your recovery. So in that circle, it's the same group of people that meet every week at the same time. Um, and we invite people to share what's going on with their recovery, share the challenges, share some of the struggles they're having. Um, but we also invite people to share some of the good things that are going on, some of the successes and, and some gratitude. And we invite folks to share an intention for the coming week. And we practice what we call loving accountability. So the following week, the group uh, kind of holds each other to account uh, for those intentions. That is so nice to hear, Raji, because that is one of the keys to making sure that someone who has gone through treatment, the key to making it successful, right, is to make sure they have the support around them. 
Oh, absolutely. And I talked to some of the people who've participated in the program who are members, and they have said just that, that what keeps them in recovery is the opportunity to come back to this community, that they feel supported. And in many ways, Simi, I was listening to the manager of the Recovery Cafe explain its purpose, and I just thought this seems kind of common sense. Like, I'm not sure what people yeah. did without it. And now, really importantly, this is their grand opening in a new location. So previously they had a pop-up, but it was on East Hastings. And the address is important because what one unhoused person told me is that at the previous location on East Hastings, they were tempted to use. They were tempted to uh, back, get back into substance abuse because of where it was located. Just right outside the door was an opportunity right. to use. So now that they're out of this hot spot for substance abuse, now that they're permanently located in this great building on six, at 620 Clark Drive, that uh, you know, innovative alternative model for this recovery cafe is it just has a better shot at helping people succeed with their recovery. And I talked to one of their members who told me really this program's helped him feel seen and heard. If I do stumble, it's the opportunities there to to work on it. You know, I don't have to run and hide. Ah, uh, well, for me, I need to build relationships, healthy relationships. So it, it definitely gives me opportunity to challenge myself too. You know, we're doing some creative dance or something and uh, the writing really, really helps. I get a times out of it. Yeah, that, that yeah. is so lovely because that just means like anything works. Whatever works, we should try that. Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of experience behind uh, the way that this is being operated because the manager at Recovery Cafe used to operate a different program at Kettle Society. He ran the Kettle on Burrard's uh, supportive housing complex, right, in the heart of downtown Vancouver. He ran that program for seven years. And yes, like housing is a very important, crucial part of helping restore people's dignity. But he also saw this other piece of the puzzle was missing that we need to provide community and a sense of uh, people being there for one another. So that's what the Recovery Cafe is trying to do as well. And you know, Simi, uh, at NW, we hear from all sorts of families. And I have heard from some of our listeners in the past that have reached out that there is a gap when it comes to recovery yes. for their loved ones who have gone through substance abuse issues. And they have literally mentioned to me that something like this was needed. So I, I think this is going to fill a gap. I, I really like the idea that they did kind of move it as well. That's such a good point to say. They need to not see the habits of addiction, right? They need to get away from that. Everybody struggles, but they some, pe some people just need to not have that visual in order to be able to move forward. Yeah. And when people are going through recovery, they are often, uh, it's a necessary part of their recovery that they get away from their previous social circle that would have supported those habits. They need different people. They need a hopeful environment. They need to know that something else exists. And so being in this different location can provide that, I think. I think so too. We need more of this, I would say. They, <laughs> are they thinking about expanding? You know, they didn't mention anything like this, but one thing that resonated with me is uh, one unhoused person told me that this is a space 
of non-judgment. And it made me think, well, <clears throat> where else do they get that space well, exactly. of non-judgment? Uh, so again, yeah, really, I'm very hopeful for the future of the Recovery Cafe. Oh, that sounds so nice. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We've all had quite the week, right, when it comes to traffic out there, and we're still talking about ways to fix this problem, ways to prevent it from happening again, especially as soon as tomorrow when we are hearing that we're going to get more snow and we already have icy conditions out there. It wasn't just cars either that had a big problem. We know it was buses that were struggling on the snow and big trucks too. We did definitely saw that, trucks that were having some problems too. So we thought, let's check in with Dave Earl, who is the president and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thanks for being back with us. Uh, happy to be here, Simi. I'm sure you've heard this a lot this week from people, but what happened to some of these trucks that were struggling this week? Yeah, I mean, what happened is is what happens when we are in inclement weather and we end up with a bunch uh, of vehicles that have stalled and not moved to the side or just been abandoned in the middle of the road. And then vehicles of all types that are coming behind them lose their momentum and we end up with a chain reaction problem. All right. Is there something do you think that we need to talk about in terms of what we can do to, to make the situation better? Simi, I, we, we sure can, but I think we know what we need to do. You and I and every person that operates a motor vehicle needs to have a little moment, look in the mirror and say, do I have the equipment to operate it? And do I have the ability to operate it? And we need to have that conversation, each of us. If we don't have the equipment or we're not comfortable driving in the snow, don't. Dave, I love that you're saying this. I love that you're saying this because I've been saying this for a couple of days now. But you know what? I don't, I'm not sure we we do that. We we tend to think, oh, I can do it. Oh, sure we do. You know, we're, we're, we people are terrible at assessing risk. But I mean, we all think about it and think it's not a problem. I can do it. I'll be fine. And it can be really, really difficult to me. I mean, let, let's be clear. This is not the easiest thing to do. You have to have practice. You have to know what you're dealing with. You have to have the right equipment. And if you don't, you are allowed to say, you know what, it's not going to work for you. I'm going to have to find another way to where I need to go. What are the rules around the big trucks and in terms of when they make the call to make sure they're prepared for winter conditions? Yeah, it really depends. So we have chain up requirements throughout the the province, except in the lower mainland, because, uh, well, frankly, we don't get a lot of snow around here, but when we do... It becomes problematic for vehicles in a lot of circumstances because, believe it or not, there are sizes of commercial tires that are not made with winter tread. There are. Okay, that's a problem. So it's one of the things we engaged with the ministry back in 2019 when we rewrote uh, and worked with them on the chain-up regulations for the highways. Uh, And we took a look at the time to say, you know, what's available? I mean, is it possible to even do this? And the short answer at the time was no. Um, most of the tread blocks that are used are used for longer life and it causes a problem. And it's a confounding one. It's hard to come up a hill if you're dragging a big load, but if you're not dragging a big load, you don't have a lot of weight over your wheels, so you don't have a lot of traction. So it, it's a difficult one. It really is. It is a difficult one. You're right. So are chains more helpful? Like, is there a time when, and plus, I guess we've talked about the the idea before, Dave, too, that there's not a lot of pullouts for trucks, right? So if they see the weather changing, where are they supposed to pull over and say, I'm going to put some chains on? Yeah, it, it, there just aren't any in the lower mainland. And to me, the bigger issue that, I, that I, we saw this week for the first time, and I, I was really quite surprised, was the number of abandoned cars. 
Um, I mean, it makes total sense when, when you're stuck in a car for hours and hours. And I, I think of, of the, the people in the Gurdwara who went and helped people on the Alex Fraser Bridge. I mean, that's a, a fabulous show of community outreach. But the bigger issue becomes is how do we get there? Um, I saw people literally stopping their cars in the middle of a road and walking away. Yeah. And I was just stunned because what do they think is going to happen? You yeah. know, their car sits there and blocks everybody else. Yeah, I know. It, there were so many shocking things, I think, that we saw unfold there, Dave, that tells us we need to be prepared. But let me ask you this. Given mm-hmm. what we've been talking about the last couple of days and even now, do you think that message is getting through? I'm hopeful. I'm ever hopeful, Cindy. You know, and when I look at people who had to get out of their cars to use the washroom to get some food and water after hours and hours, I've got great sympathy. Um, but we have to be thoughtful about how we got there in the first place. And that's why I'm hoping... Uh, again, every year, uh, I hope that we have conversations and a few more people learn what it takes to be able to drive in inclement weather. Okay, so let's say it snows tomorrow, Dave, and we're on the road and we see a big truck, like we see a semi-truck in front of us or near us. What mm-hmm. should we do? How much space does that truck need? How can we help? One of the things that you look at is these vehicles take a lot of a lot of time to stop and to get going. So uh, they need some space to get moving. They're not going to slip and slide sideways as quickly as small vehicles will, but they will. Certainly when you're actually moving and you're going on, on the roadways and making some progress, um, I see vehicles dart in front of commercial vehicles in the best of circumstances. Um, that's extremely dangerous because that vehicle can't stop as quickly as a light vehicle can. Well, you can imagine now. The biggest thing to do is to give the driver space. Give them some room to be able to move. Give them some room to be able to stop. And and that seems like such a basic thing. It is, but we all get tied up, you know, in our our own minds and just don't think sometimes. And and mistakes do get made. Um, And then some people just don't know. So that's why I'm always happy to be on your show and, and talking about these issues. Just so hopefully a few more people can learn a little bit and make better decisions. So any words of advice then for people like you, what about the truckers? What kind of message have you sent to the truckers in the association this week? Oh yeah, be prepared. Um, it's particularly in the lower mainland, consider, take, you know, consider taking some type of traction device. There's chains, there's textile devices. Um, they're not always authorized for use on highways, so make sure you know what you've got. You can't just go to a store and go get one. Um, make sure you know what you're using and how to use it, so consider having those. Um, but mostly just pack your patience, plan your route, you know, watch for those hills and grades. And if it looks bad, and I saw a lot of commercial vehicles this week, they just found a place to pull over. You know, no one's going to shoot you out of a parking lot in a snowstorm. Um, so just take a few hours and then find a safe place to be. All good advice this morning, Dave. Thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. That's Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Yes, there were trucks that struggled uh, during the snowstorm we had on Tuesday. But hey, let's face it, everybody was struggling. And he gives great advice of what to remember if there is a snowstorm again and you find yourself seeing a, a big semi-truck, you know, in the vicinity, give them lots of space. Let them do what they need to do to, do to get up that hill or to keep moving uh, because we're all sharing that space, right? Everybody's struggling. And again, warnings about tomorrow. Uh, We know that it's cold today. It's very icy out there. So be careful, especially on those side streets.